Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the Word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So what can we learn this Easter from the story of St. Thomas? That's the question for this morning. And in order to answer it, I'm going to need you to turn to your pew Bibles or your PBAs, and I'm hoping I can get it up on the screen, to John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. As you turn, let me just remind you of one of the many great things about Easter, which is that the stories of the post-resurrection narratives are just so diverse. They don't read initially like they cohere. This is the way that history actually is. It's messy. You get Jesus with Mary in the garden and she mistakes him for the gardener. You get Cleopas and the other disciple on the Emmaus Road and they're having a conversation. And we were discussing things and Jesus comes alongside them and says, what things? And they basically say, what rock did you come out from under? Everybody knows what things. And then he appears, Paul says, to 500 at one time. And then he appears on the side of the lake and fixes the disciples' breakfast. And on and on it goes. They're all so different, and they're all meant to mark diverse aspects of our Lord's ministry, this one included. So what can we learn from this one? You all with me? All right, so turn in your text, and let's think about this story uh, in some detail, if you'd be so kind. Now, what I want to suggest as we begin is that Thomas often gets a bum rap. I definitely feel that way. And I want you to think of him as a scientist. I think it's an interesting argument And as someone who did his undergraduate in chemistry, this means a lot to me. Science needs respect. It's a limited field. It's an important field. But it's also a very misunderstood field, especially in the West in the 21st century. But scientists have to do something all the time, which is actually very hard to do. And it's this. You have to be willing to change your mind based on new evidence. When I was doing my doctorate in Oxford a number of years ago, and Bishop Salmon was the Bishop of South Carolina, he came with his wife to Oxford to visit, and he took me out for breakfast, and he asked me a question. He said, Kendall, what ways have you changed your mind since you started your study? I took it as a compliment, because he actually thought maybe I did change my mind. But the reason he asked it is because it's actually quite important, but it's not very easy to do. But if you're a scientist and you've got a hypothesis and you've got data, and the hypothesis is here and the data is there, and the data doesn't line up with the hypothesis, guess what? You snooze, you lose. You have to bow down before the data and say, that was a lousy hypothesis, I need to try again. We're in CSI world, for those of you who are Grissom fans, right? Follow the evidence. Now what is is Thomas saying? He's saying, look, this is the way I'm put together. I'm a scientist. I need evidence. I need stuff that's in front of me that I can taste, tell, smell, touch, and see. And if I get that, I'm willing to change my mind. And I want you to be impressed that he's putting the conditions, but he's also being honest about the nature of who God made him to be. Now, don't underestimate the importance of changing your mind based on new evidence. One historical illustration from science and then one from the church. The first is the discovery of penicillin, which happened thanks to Alexander Fleming, as you may know, in August of 1928. That summer he did something he hadn't done for a long time, which is very important. He took a vacation with his wife and his young son. 
he left a very messy lab behind, and one of his assistants left the window open. He came back, he went into the lab, and he was annoyed because there were a whole bunch of Petri dishes, and the window was open. And he looked at the dishes, which were full of staphylococcus bacteria, and he looked at the microbes, and unlike just about everybody else in the world, certainly myself included, he looked at one of the Petri dishes, and he said to himself, wait a minute, why does it look like that? It shouldn't look like that. What's going on? One of the bacterial colonies around the fungus had been killed. Farther away from the fungus, the bacteria looked normal. But next to this fungus, they were dead. And he said to himself, that's not supposed to look that way. Why is he supposed to look that way? It was an accident. His assistant made a mistake. He left the window open. It's just like Moses at the burning bush. It's burning, but it's not consumed. So if it's burning and it's a bush, okay, it's a fire, it's going to burn out. But no, he takes the time to look aside and say, wait a minute, it looks like that. Why does it look like that? And then he's willing to change his mind. Thanks to Alexander Fleming, we have basically one of the most important substances in all of modern medicine. Incredible the number of things that penicillin cures even to this very day. Absolutely vital in every aspect of 21st century medicine. The other illustration I want to use is from Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's one of the great ministers of the last century. He's from my father's father's generation. He was born in 1899 and lived to 1981. He was actually a, a, a regular medical doctor who became a preacher. And this is from one of his preaching missions where he starts out, and he went around the world and did this all the time. And this is from his biography. I want you to listen to this man as he's traveling around the world some five decades ago and see what you make of how he starts out. Now, he says in his first sermon in this place, do you think you can answer a question for me? Can you be honest with one another and never profess to believe more than is actually true to your actual experience? Let us all agree at the beginning with the help of the Holy Spirit to testify to our belief in full but never a word more. Now listen, here he goes on, very searching this. Our chapels and our churches are crowded with people, nearly all of whom take the Lord's Supper without a moment's hesitation, and yet, without trying to judge harshly or unjustly, do you actually imagine for a moment that all those people really believe that Christ died for them? Well, then you ask, why are they church members? Why do they pretend to believe? The answer is that they are afraid to be honest with themselves. Afraid of what their parents and friends would say if they got up and said that they couldn't honestly say Christ meant anything to them. I do not know what your experience is, my friends, but as for myself, I shall feel very much more ashamed for all eternity for the occasions on which I said I believed in Christ when in fact I did not than for the occasions when I honestly said I could not truthfully say that I believe. If the church of Christ could only get rid of the parasites of those who only believe what they ought to believe about Christ, she would, I am certain, be more effective in the world like she was in her early days, and as she has always been in times of great spiritual awakening. And here comes the conclusion. Wait for it. I ask you, therefore, tonight, and I shall go on asking you and myself the same question. You ready? Do you know what you know about the gospel? Boom. Boy, there's a question. 
That'll preach. Do you know what you know about the gospel? Do you question yourself about your belief? And make sure. What's he saying? Let's agree to look at the evidence and be honest with ourselves and the evidence together. It's absolutely critical. It's one of the reasons he was so effective. It's one of the reasons that Thomas is in the New Testament. You all with me? So first of all, honest examination of the evidence. That's point one. Number two, humble accommodation. You notice these all start with an H. That's to help you. So honest examination is followed by humble accommodation. Now, what what I want you to realize about this story is we don't know why Thomas wasn't there. We're not told. This is when it says eight days later, that's a mnemonic device. It's really seven days later. The first scene happened on Easter night. This is literally eight days later, a week Sunday, right? So we're, we're on the following Sunday, and for whatever reason, Thomas wasn't there. And Jesus comes through the door. Now, look. By the time this happens, we have the testimony of the eleven, we have the testimony of the women, we have other people's testimony, we have the movement of the rock, and all this stuff. There's lots of testimony of people who look like normal people, who seem to have brains, who are saying things that are quite extraordinary. And Jesus comes through the door as the risen, crucified Lord of glory. He made the universe by the power of his outstretched hand. And here's Jesus, the great and awesome God in human form, the author of the story who's entered his story. And so he comes through the door and he comes to Thomas. And what do you expect to see? One of the things about the Bible I want to make sure to keep pointing out to you is the Bible does not yield its secrets to inattentive readers. You've got to learn to ask questions of the text. You've got to ask hard questions of the text. So you've got to ask yourself the question, why does it read like that and not as, as it should be? How should it read? It should read like this. Hi, I'm Jesus. I'm the resurrected Lord. You have the women's testimony. You have your friend's testimony. You have other testimony. You have the rock. I'm the Lord. You're the disciple. You don't set the terms. I set the terms. That's what he should say. He says at the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He owns it all. The cattle on a thousand hills, as the Psalms say. So what in the world is he doing coming through the door and going straight to Thomas, right, not to the others, straight to Thomas, and basically he says, okay, Thomas, here's the deal. You want to do it this way? We're going to do it your way. It's astounding. It's an astounding condescension of our Lord. He meets Thomas right where he is on his own terms. This is the way that Thomas is put together. Okay, says Jesus, if that's the way you're put together, I'm going to meet you right there. One of Calvin's illustrations of this idea is of a very well-educated mother down on her rug, prostrate with a six-month-old baby going, boo, boo, ba, ba, boo, boo. You sometimes see this. And you say to yourself, now look, she's a highly educated woman. She can put multiple paragraphs of correctly, grammatically constructed sentences together. Why is she down there talking nonsense? Because she's an idiot? No, because she's a mother. And she's down there looking her baby in the eye, meeting her baby on his or her own terms. That's what mothers do. God bless them all on Mother's Day. Here's Karl Barth. It is undoubtedly, he says away into the far country. And it includes an inconceivable humiliation and condescension and self-abasement of God. Did you catch those three words? Humiliation, 
condescension and self-abasement of God that in His Son He wills to become and actually does become a man. He's talking about the Incarnation. He's talking about Christmas. We're way past that. What you need to be really have your breath taken away by in this story is Jesus didn't come all the way down just to heaven and become a man as astounding as that is. And can I just pause for the umpteenth time and note, right, we're in the world of modern cosmology, right? So when we talk about a universe... We, we know so much more than our ancestors about what that means. And it's really big. It goes really far. Just take a look at the Hubble telescope pictures. And God's bigger than that. And the God who's bigger than that, what does that mean? How big is that God? He's incredibly big. And he came all the way, all the way down to became, become a man. But having all the way come down to become a man and become a servant and be put to death, and now he's resurrected, he's still condescending to the very person who's setting the terms, and he should be setting the terms. Augustine says he knows us better than we know ourselves, and he meets Thomas right there. It's an astounding, back-breaking self-abasement, and it illustrates his grace and his love to a remarkable degree. Can we all agree this morning that everybody's different? We have the God who makes no two snowflakes alike. We have the God who makes no two people alike. Just ask any parents. We have three kids don't want to get too far off on this, but um, I know you're going to be shocked. They're not the same. There's all sorts of things about them that we don't fully understand. Our oldest is a raving extrovert, Abigail. Her name means source of joy, and she's always been an infectious source of joy ever since she was born. When she was born in Sumter before we left for Oxford in 1989, when she was about six months old, every once in a while we went out and we had to give her away to parishioners to babysit. And I've got this vivid memory etched in my mind of going to see one family where we'd been away for dinner, and I came to the door, and the mother looked at me through the door, and she said, you know, um, I really appreciate you coming, but can we just have half an hour more? <laughs> because we're having so much fun, can you come back in half an hour? And the thing is, I believe it, and she was serious, and, we, and I did. But, but, but that's, that's just not normal. That's just not a normal level of gregariousness and joy. And that was in her first year of life, and she's still like that. I can't figure it out. My wife can't explain it. It's way beyond chromosomes. We're talking about a mystery that's mind-boggling. Here's another illustration that I absolutely love from, of all things, an admissions officer at Dartmouth College, which may be known to you, a liberal arts college in New Hampshire. She served on the admissions committee for multiple, multiple years, and she writes about one experience that she had in all of her years an admissions counselor that stood out above all the others. And the reason I like this story is because it's right on this point of no two people are alike. The most surprising story I ever came across in my admissions career came from a student who went to a large public school in New England. He was very bright, as evidenced by his class rank and his teacher's praise. He had supportive recommendations from his college counselor, an impressive list of extracurricular activities. Even with all these qualifications, he would not have probably stood out. But one letter of recommendation caught my eye. It was from the school custodian. Letters of recommendation are typically superfluous, written by people who the applicant thinks will impress the school. We regularly receive letters from former presidents, celebrities, trustees, relatives, and even Olympic athletes. But they genuinely fail to impress us, usually, on another angle of who the student is or could be. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support the student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the entire school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. 
He turned off the lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. The student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a student recommendation from a custodian. He got in by unanimous vote of the committee. No two people alike. He's unique. You're unique. I've been married 35 years. I still miscommunicate with my wife. She still miscommunicates with me because we're still mysterious in some ways to one another. You know what I'm talking about. Life is not a problem to be solved. It's a mystery to be lived. And it's astounding that this God meets Thomas right smack on his own terms. Not the God who calls out of the burning bush, hey, what's your name? Hey, what's your name? No, 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 no. Moses, Moses, twice by his first name. So deep is God's knowledge of whom he's dealing with. Are you with me? So first of all, honest examination. Second of all, heartfelt, beautifully uh, heartfelt accommodation and humble accommodation. And finally, heartfelt appropriation. I love this, this story for lots of reasons, but I love the end. And what I want you to notice about it, if you look at the text for just a second, is I want you to notice the pronouns in verses 27 and 28. This is a very intimate story. One of the interesting questions, and apparently I found out in the parking lot after the first service, I set off a debate by saying this at the early service. That wasn't my intention, but it's just true to the text. Just for the record, it it isn't actually clear whether Thomas actually put his hands in the wounds or not. It doesn't actually say. It works both ways. You can actually do the story both ways. He's coming to faith one way or the other. At one level, he might not have needed it because he was so astounded by the degree to which Jesus was willing to meet him on his own terms and so astounded by the sight once he got close to it. He didn't need to put his hands in. But if he put his hands in, if he didn't put his hands in, I don't know. It's not in the text. It works either way. The whole point is he's crossing over the line, my great Professor J.I. Packer talked about, between knowledge about God and knowledge of God. And the difference between the two, brothers and sisters, is night and day. Look at the text and look at the pronouns. Your finger, my hands, your hand, my side. And Thomas answers, O Lord God. No, not O Lord God. O Lord Almighty God. No, 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 no. O Lord Great and Terrible God. No, 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 no. My Lord and my God. This is intimate, this is personal, this is crossing over, this is real faith, this is real worship. One of the ways, if you were to dramatically act out this scene, you could have him prostrate at Jesus' feet, actually worshiping him. There's a call here to, to total personal appropriation of the truth of what Jesus is talking about. My favorite story about this is from the 19th century Walenda. You know who the Walendas are, right? They're the evil Knievel types, you know, the family that does all the tightrope stuff and all that stuff. Well, in the 19th century, there was a guy who was the Walenda of the 19th century whose name was Charles Blondin, B-L-O-N-D-I-N. He was just phenomenal. I, I read about him again yesterday in the Smithsonian, and even reading about him hundreds of years later just blows my mind. I mean, this, to say that this guy was a hot dog, I mean, he made evil Knievel look relaxed. He he just had no fear. He said he could never get life insurance because no one was willing to take the chance. Such a hot dog was he among his many exploits that when he went over the tightrope on Niagara Falls, which he did multiple times, at one point 
And can I just say in pausing, there's no net. There's no helicopters like there are sometimes for the Walendas. There's nothing. It's all or nothing. He t- this is true. It's in the story. He took a pot-bellied stove and a pan to the middle of the tightrope with himself, nobody else, and he cooked the egg, right, on the pot-bellied stove, and then he lowered the egg onto the maid of the mist and fed them breakfast. That's just nuts. That's, this guy has no fear. So this is a story about one of his days when he was showing off as was his want, the world's greatest tightrope walker in the 19th century. So he goes over and he comes back and he does all these steps and jumps up and down and all this stuff. And then he turns to the audience on this particular occasion and makes a sensational offer. He's going to cross the falls again, only this time he's going to take someone on his back. Who was willing to go? No one rushed forward to accept the offer. So he picked a man at random in the crowd, pointed at him and said, Do you believe that I'm able to carry you across? Yes, sir, came the unhesitating reply. Well then, let's go, said Blondin. Not on your life, said the man. Right? And can anybody here relate? And so it went. One after another expressed great confidence in the tightrope whopper, but no one would agree to let Blondin take them across. Finally, a young fellow moved toward the front of the crowd. Blondin repeated his question, Do you believe I can carry you across? Yes, I do. Are you willing to let me? As a matter of fact, I am. And you know the rest of the story. Your dad got right. He took him across. And here's the point. This is what this means. There's all the difference in the world between saying theoretically, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe you could take somebody across. It's all different. All the cut, the, the strings are gone. There's no rope underneath. There's no helicopters. You, if you, you're entrusting yourself completely to that person. It's an act of personal willing surrender. And that's what this is. That's what it means to have Jesus Christ as your Lord. It is, a, it is an act of the will. He doesn't believe about Jesus. He believes in Jesus. He knows Jesus. He's my Lord and my God. So it's three things, brothers and sisters. It's honest examination, it's humble accommodation, and it's heartfelt appropriation. You all with me so far? All right, now a couple of questions and I'm done. Unfortunately, though, for you, I go from preaching to meddling. You, you knew it was coming. So... First of all, I want to say that I think there's a call here to Christian confidence. And this is important to me as someone who did not grow up in a Christian family and who got roasted basically to death every day at college for four years for being a Christian. We actually are Christians who state every week in our worship, we believe when we say the creed. And that word believe literally means we stake our life on. It's like a marriage vow, right? You ever watch a marriage with two people in their 20s and you listen to the vows to have and to hold from this day forward, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness, until we are parted by death? And you're sitting there and you're thinking, they have absolutely no idea of the implication. They can't possibly know the implications. But you're basically saying, I give you my life, you're giving me, I'm entrusting you with my life. Period. No backseas, no codicils, no uh, subtexts. No subcontracts, no conditions. It's all or nothing. And the question's got to be asked, do we actually believe what we believe for a reason? We're back to Lloyd-Jones. We're back to the the scientists. We're back to to Grissom and CSI. Follow the evidence. And can I just remind you in this Easter season, we actually believe this really happened once in space and time history. 
Do you know that? Could you defend your faith in the office if you got roasted for lunch and you had to defend it? And you'd say, well, you know, actually, Jesus' Easter resurrection and that story is actually a historical fact that's quite well attested. Could you actually say that? Here's New Testament scholar Tom Wright. Jesus of Nazareth was certainly dead by Friday evening. Roman soldiers were professional killers and would not have allowed a not-quite-dead rebel leader to stay that way for long. When the first Christians told the story of what happened next, they were not saying, I think he's still with us in the spiritual sense, or I think he's gone to heaven. All these have been suggested by people who've lost their theological and historical nerve. No, the historian must explain why Christianity got going in the first place. Why did it hail Jesus as Messiah despite his execution, which hadn't defeated the pagans, rebuilt the temple, or brought justice or peace to the world, all of which a Messiah was supposed to have done, and why the early Christian movement took the shape that it did. The only explanation that will fit the evidence, there it is, the $100 sentence, the only explanation that will fit the evidence is the one the early Christians insisted upon. He really had been raised from the dead. His body was not just reanimated, it was transformed so that he was no longer subject to to sickness and death. Let's be clear. The stories are not about someone coming back into the present mode of life. They're not about somebody going to some sort of new existence, still emphatically bodily, if anything more so. When Paul speaks of a spiritual resurrection, he doesn't mean non-material like a ghost. Spiritual is the sort of Greek word that tells you not what something is made of, but what is animating it. The risen Jesus had a physical body animated by God's life-giving spirit. Yes, says St. Paul, the same spirit is at work in us and will have the same effect in the whole world. It's a funny thing, that rum thing about the dying God, says C.S. Lewis's friend, the atheist by the fireplace one night. It seems to have really happened once. Hmm. Do you believe that? Do you stake your life on it? Can you defend it? This is a call for Christian confidence. We're in a time where most Christians in the West have lost their nerve. You have no reason to lose your nerve. None. You have all the evidence in the world on your side. And you can defend it. And First Peter says we should be able to defend it. Second of all, there's a, te- there's a testimony here about the grace of God to come and meet each one of us. And the way that I just want to say this is simply to say... Um, if you turn it around and you think about it carefully, if you were God, would you want you on your team? You see what I'm asking? If you were God, would, would you want you? The answer is no. And part of what this passage is desperately trying us to get, get to understand is when, when Augustine says he knows us better than he knows ourselves, there's a profound truth in there about how much God worked did how much work God did to get us to the place where we have faith. Jesus did a lot of work to get to Thomas. He did a lot of work to get to me. How much time do you have? We can talk after the service. He had to do so much work just to get my attention, much less to bring me to faith. It was crazy what happened. Absolutely crazy. Because I'm not like you, and you're probably not like me, because we're all so different. Paul says in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 5, something really important. He says... If any man or woman is in Christ, and then the text in Greek breaks down, it actually is almost untranslatable because there's no proper way to get it across. But basically what he says is, it's as if it was the world was created all over again. Kine katissis, new creation. If any man or woman becomes a Christian, it's a miracle. 
It's as if there was a whole new creation of a whole new world. That's how stupendous it is. So this morning, I want you to be in awe of your own faith if you have it. And if you don't have faith, I want you to ask for it because only those who the Father draws can come to Jesus. And finally, there's some encouragement here, it seems to me, about evangelism. It's a great story about lots of things, but if it's a story about anything, it's about the importance of prayer, isn't it? Because if God meets every one of us on our own terms, how can you possibly know another person well enough to know what they really need and how they really live and move and how they're being and how they tick? You can't. And now you're in a place in the 21st century in the West where people are so alienated and so lonely, they don't know the first thing about their neighbor. You do know this, right, about what a lonely time we're living in? Uh, yesterday's New York Times, there's a whole uh, article about the, the dynamic duo who started SoulCycle. They're, they've act, they're done with SoulCycle now. They, they founded a new company. I'm not making this up. It's called Peoplehood. They have meetings. They're called Gathers, G-A-T-H-E-R-S. No, I'm not making this up. And I promise you can read the article. The, yeah, what's a gather? You're probably wondering. I'll tell you what a gather is. It's when people come and probably pay a lot of money and agree to come and talk and listen to one another. That's essentially what it is. The the article meeting that they profile, here are the three questions. Uh, How are you feeling right now? What keeps you up at 3 o'clock in the morning? And what are you most looking forward to? Those are the three questions. Wow! But the whole point is you can see it's a brilliant idea. They're basically replicating a church with good small groups. But what, why is it so successful? Because a whole bunch of people in New York haven't got the foggiest notion of who they are, and they have no idea who their neighbors are, and they're desperately lonely. So how in the world are we going to learn about one another well enough to get the faith across on terms that are going to make sense to a person the way they're put together? We're not. It will never argue anybody in the kingdom of heaven. Never happened, never will. But we can pray. And when Jesus says, and you're taking notes this morning, I want you to take this down, John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So I give you, brothers and sisters, the story of Thomas. I give you the truth of God that you can stake your life on. I give you the grace of God that condescends to meet us where we are. And I give you the gift of God, which is the gift of faith, which only comes through prayer from him. In Jesus' name. Amen.